things. And those are our announcements basically for this morning. So I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles if you're at home right now and you've got the coffee, the tea, and uh, whatever else you've got going on there, um, uh, which is awesome that you're able to do this. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 16, pardon me. We're going to be in verses 19 to 31, ending the chapter this week before we go into Holy Week this week. Uh, And as I already mentioned, uh, it actually was three weeks ago yesterday that we as a church made the decision that we would not gather here in our building in downtown Squamish at the Ledge Community Coffee House, which is our building here, uh, any further, but that we would do this online. And so it's really three to four weeks in since the current COVID-19 crisis has really hit Canada. And of course, sadly, the United States as well. And it's been going through the world for at least two to three months at this point in time. So um, I'm not sure how all of you are feeling at this point, but I'll just say it seems like a lot longer than that to me. And I'm sure it does to some of you as well. We're hoping again this week to be able to minister to you through uh, the word and through worship and other things to encourage you. But I also want to encourage you before we begin this morning and I read the text, may I encourage you to reach out to each other. We have FaceTime, we have Zoom. We have the phone. (laughs) Um, Phone each other. Uh, Get in touch with each other, uh, face-to-face at least, and be able to see each other. And maybe even set up that kind of a relationship with your neighbors uh, so that you can communicate with them, and not just from six feet apart, but also uh, have conversations with them. So if you're in chapter 16 of Luke, I'm going to read our text for today. And as is our pattern, I'll read the whole text. Then I'm going to pray one more time, and then we're going to dive into this amazing parable that Jesus gave a little over 2,000 years ago. He said, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man, whose name was Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said to Abraham, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let's pray. 
gracious Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit. Father, we sense that we are, we are listening to the words of Jesus this morning, and we sense, Lord, that he is speaking to us truth, not just a story. We sense, Lord, that these are very challenging words. But we also know, Lord, that you love us. You love all of your creation. You love every child that has been born. And that includes every one of us. So, Heavenly Father, I pray, would you encourage us today? Would you bless us, Lord Jesus? Would we see and hear you in this text? And Holy Spirit, would you comfort us? At the same time, would you encourage us to respond appropriately to your word today, to these words of Jesus? And I pray these things in his worthy name. Amen. So, let's be honest. That's a very interesting parable, right? Very interesting parable. And I I know many of you have heard it before, read it before, maybe heard it preached a lot. I don't believe, quite frankly, however, this is a sermon or a parable that most preachers go to very often, unless they're going through books of the Bible, verse by verse, as we do, and they must go through this parable. And I'm sure that for most of us, it's not, it's not right there in our hearts like the prodigal son is, right? Or even some of the other parables of Jesus, where this may not be like in our top three even, right? But I want to encourage you today that this powerful parable that is coming from the lips of Jesus himself should be, should be one of our favorite parables. The truth that is in this that he is, he is giving to his audience in that day and to you and I here today is, is really in response to one of the most important questions that any of us have ever asked or at least should be asking at any given time, and that is this question, is there life after death? And if there is, what does it look like? What lies ahead of each of us if, in fact, there is? A few uh, weeks ago, not too long ago actually, maybe uh, 10 days, two weeks ago, um, I heard a really great podcast, and, and not by choice by the way, I, both my wife and I had woken up in the middle of the night and Janice likes to li- listen to podcasts, and she noticed that I was awake and she, she said, do you want to hear something? You should listen to this, and it was really against my will because I don't really like earbuds stuck in my ear in the middle of the night, or at any time for that matter, and, and so she, she, she stuck it in my ear and she said, listen to this. And so, of course, I had really no choice, and and I did. It was a really good podcast. It was a talk given by a teacher at Labrie, one of the schools that started out of the original location in Switzerland, originally founded in 1955 by Francis Schaeffer. The teacher's subject was death. Lovely, right? Well, he was actually speaking to mostly a room full of 20-somethings, 20-year-olds who were at the school, and, and it was actually given just a few weeks ago, and it was actually one of the last classes that was taught at Labrie in Massachusetts before they discontinued classes together because of the current crisis. And so it was really quite uh, timely, if you think about it, because everyone's mortality, obviously, is actually and certainly more closely top of mind today than it was even three weeks ago. His introduction to his message was uh, intended, really, to help modern minds, 
especially those born in the last 20 to 30 years, to help them, to help all of us really, understand our culture's prevailing attitude towards death, which he essentially implied was one of denial. And to help bring that, that, that home to them, and I'm going to do the same today, he gave them a brief history lesson in order to provide some sobering thoughts on the subject. He noted that prior to 1950, or pardon me, 1850, the 1850s, prior to that, for about 200 years, the average lifespan for a man or a woman was their 30s or potentially their 40s. If you lived into your 60s, you were ancient, and it was rare, actually. He also told them that at that time, child mortality at birth was 25%. And that by, by the time children were 12 years of age, 50% of the children born into a family would have died at 12 years of age. And so life expectancy at that time was one where it was common in that culture to have to deal on a regular basis with death. Well, of course, we now know that in the days that we live in today, especially in the past 15 to 20 years alone, we've seen life expectancy for adults move past the 70, 75, 80 even now. Being 65 is like being the new 40 today, right? In a lot of people's minds. And of course, infant mortality has also been re reduced by a factor of 170 times, including most children today living, of course, until adulthood, unless accidents or other significant diseases. So the question at this point must be, why? Why did that teacher and do I or do you pastor think we need to know this today, hear this today. Well, his thesis and point was, and mine is as well, is that in our world today, we've been conditioned uh, to not only not think about death, but to avoid it at all costs, to avoid the subject, to avoid the ultimate question of what happens when we die. And then add to that from the perspective of God and Jesus, this is the ultimate question. It's the reason why Jesus came into this world, which was to end death in the way that we know it, and to declare, quite frankly, that there is, yes, life after death, after death. So that then is what this parable is actually all about. It's about life and death, and yes, it's about heaven and hell. What happens? after we die. This is what is on Jesus' mind here today. And so I hope we will hear from him. Your sermon title for today, I usually have three points, I don't. This is a, a narrative, a text, there's one point, and it's your sermon title, which is, From Rags to Riches. Now, what do you think about that? that? That's everybody's dream to a certain extent, right? Is that we would all go from rags to riches. We'd all go from nothing and to greatness or whatever it might be. I hope you'll see that in the story here today, that all of us, all of us need to go from rags to riches. Let's look at our first verse today and begin the story. In verse 19 of chapter, verse 19 of chapter 16, Jesus begins the story with these words. Here we go. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously, great word, every day. 
So, so Jesus opens, and, and I'm thinking at this point, he opens with a parable, and as we've known, like all of the parables, beginning in chapter 15 and especially into chapter 16, all of the parables have been these great contrasts, but they've really, really aimed at the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious types, those who, uh, and they're notable because those were the people in that day who believed that they could earn God's approval and acceptance, be in his good graces, and therefore earn uh, the right to be with him in heaven, to be saved, their own salvation, through works, through what they did, through how they behaved, how good they were on their own. And so you would think that at this point, they're almost, they hear these opening words, and they might be thinking, some of them might be going, finally, <laughs> finally, Jesus is, is putting us in a really good light. I mean, look, he's talking about us here. You know, oh, good, something positive about us. Look, we are the people, yes, who are dressed in, in purple, in these wonderful clothing. Um, and, and we're the rich ones clothed in these and, and, and in fine linen and, and who feast every day. Uh, good, finally a story where we get to be the hero. Well, now we've read the whole text, so you know and I know that that's not the way it's going to go. But I, I'm pretty sure the way they approach this from the beginning is, is that, well, yeah, that's rags to riches right there. That's, that's us. We are these people. Good one, Jesus. So the story opens with Jesus introducing us to the main characters in the story. And first, of course, is this rich man. He's rather wealthy since he's clothed in purple, which is actually in those days a sign of royalty. And so purple is really an important color. He's also clothed, look at this, in fine linen. Again, very expensive cloth and clothing in those days. It is even today. He spends his days eating and drinking and being very merry with his life. Every day he's feasting on a new charcuterie platter every evening. That's just to begin with. The finest VQA, Okanagan wines. Every day, the text tells us, this is good life. This is success. There's a scene change in verses 20 and 21 where Jesus introduces some new characters. One in particular. And at his gate was laid, look at this, a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So we're introduced here to a, another character in the story, who of course is the contrast that Jesus likes to present in all of his parables. He does that often, contrasting two different lifestyles, two different kinds of people, Hopefully, again, so that we would get the message, but specifically so that these religious men would get the message. So he's a poor man. Uh, now, now, what's he clothed in? You see, like, it doesn't say clothed, but it actually does. He's covered in sores. Quite the contrast. He lies outside the rich man's gate, we're told, his palace every day, just hoping for some table scraps which is why it's interesting that we're told that there are dogs there because those are the animals that would normally benefit from the table scraps, correct? So right away we see this great contrast. I, I want to suggest to you it's a great gulf, actually, between these two men. One's rich, he's very successful, he represents someone who likes to enjoy his wealth to the fullest, he likes to put it on display. On the other hand, there's this man who's desperately desperately poor, whose only hope for food is the generosity 
of the rich man. But there's a lot more. There's a lot more in view here. I'm not sure if you've noticed it. Commentators and preachers and pastors over the year have noticed it. Others who study the passage well have noticed it. That this is the only parable of Jesus where he actually names one of the characters. He names two, actually, but the contrasting character he names. And, of course, his name is Lazarus. And that then leads us to the question, well, then why doesn't he name the rich man? Why doesn't he give us his name as well? So let's consider the reasons why he doesn't do that. First, it's clear from the context in Luke and what we've been seeing for weeks now that the rich man represents any or all of the Pharisees or anyone who is like a Pharisee. Those who most oppose, are most opposed to Jesus and his teachings are the Pharisees and the scribes, all of the religious leaders, and despite all of their criticism, ridicule, and sneers, the, the, the unbelievable thing to me, and it should be encouraging to all of us who've been like these men or maybe even are like these men today, Jesus still pursues them. He's still trying to reason with them to believe him and trust him. He continually tries to soften their hard hearts in order that their blind eyes might be opened and that they might see the truth of who he is and who for, therefore they really are. So first, they collectively are the rich man, and of course, Jesus is not painting them in the most fa favorable light at all, is he? But secondly, and this is important, their namelessness tells us that their identity is not found in their name, in, in, in who they are before God, but their identity is, is actually found in their wealth, in their position, in their possessions, in their sumptuous lifestyle. That's what they want people to see, and that's who people, they want people to think they are. Wealthy, successful, beneficial people from what they've done with their lives and not in God. So they're those who spend their lives making a name for themselves based on what they do, right? What they have, their wealth, their success, their possessions, their lifestyle. Sadly, in, in their prideful minds, they'd gotten to this thinking that, that their being rich meant that God was blessing them and God was pleased with them. Poor meant, in their minds, that you were actually under the judgment of God for your sinful lifestyle. A warped mindset, for sure. Now listen, before you and I do what most of us generally do with the Pharisees, which is to throw them under the bus, uh, shake our heads and say, boy, oh boy, am I ever glad I'm not like one of them, right? I don't know if any of you have ever done that, but uh, I think we may have thought about that. So let's be careful. We can all fall into this trap, honestly, non and Christian. We can fall into this trap and in so many ways. For, for example, let's just think about it, how you might introduce yourself at a social or even at a, a church gathering for the first time. People will come up to you and say, hey, hey, and, and they, they will put out their hand, okay, we won't do that today, but I might put out my hand at some point and say, hi, my name is Glenn, and you are, yeah, nice to meet you. What do you think the next question might be? Well, one of those questions might be, so where are you from? But you know what the next question is going to be, right? What do you do? is going to be that question. 
It's interesting. I think about this often. I have th- I've talked about it before. But usually our response is, listen to these words, I am a preacher, pastor, teacher. I am a carpenter. I am fill in the blank. Whatever your profession or whatever your work career is, whatever you do, we identify this way. The vast majority of us identify ourselves with what we do or what we are passionate about. You might not go off to what you work at, but you might talk about your, your, your latest climbing exercise or bike trip or whatever it might be exercise-wise. You might talk about that. We talk about these things not only, I want to suggest to you before I go on, is that these are not always a bad thing, right? It's not always a bad thing to, to be proud of being a, a doctor or whatever it might be that you do with your life, a pastor, a preacher for that matter, until, of course, it becomes a source of pride, a need in our lives to be seen to be somebody important. So let's face it, we all want to be thought of well and that our lives are important, that's a good thing. But once again, however, what happens, what often happens, is that we find our identity, which may and often does fail us, will not live up to the things that we want it to do and what we need from it. And then we maybe want to change course. So that can be so many things, right? We find our identities, yes, as I said, in our work, our success, in our money, our wealth, our possessions, our home, our spouses, yes, our children and family. It can also be, of course, our ministry or fill in the blank, as I've said. And we do the, when we do that, again, chances are very good that at some point, if we make people or anything into an ultimate thing, they will become an idol to us. Tim Keller, one of my favorite authors and pastors, he wrote these words in Counterfeit Gods, and he said this, An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God himself can give you. His conclusion I'll put on screen was this. An idol is anything is anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel like living. Would feel hardly like or worth living, pardon me. I, I, I want to think about I think about that right now with the things that we are losing in this day and in this time. Many of us have idols that we might lose. I hope we will find that life is worth living. And that's why Jesus wants us to understand this parable. So in our story here today, the Pharisees, the Pharisee then is anyone who has made their wealth, their position, their status, their possessions, family, and yes, lifestyle for sure into an idol, something that they find their identity in, their value and worth in, more than their relationship with God and who he has and desires them to make them to be. God has a much better identity for you and for me than anything we can come up with on our own. So believer, hear hear this today. Hear this today from these opening verses, just the contrast between these two men, the unnamed and the named. Believer, hear this today. God knows your name. He knows your name. 
He knows my name is Glenn. He knows every one of your names if you have placed your faith and trust in Christ today. Your name is written in Revelation, tells us, in the Lamb's book of life. That's Jesus' book of life. Luke 10.20 tells us this, Jesus' own words. To his disciples, he came back, and, and they were so happy that the demons were listening to them. And Jesus says to them, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus shocked the Pharisees, and Matthew records it in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, when he spoke of a coming day when some of them, when some of those who've tried to build their approval and acceptance before God through their own good works, that they would stand before him one day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do good things for you? Didn't we free the poor? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do all these good things in your name? And Jesus responded to those Pharisees in that day in Matthew chapter 7 with these words in verse 23. And then, on that day, I will declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Doesn't know their names. He does know their names, obviously, clearly. So far in the story, it's rather brief, I know, but in just three verses, Jesus has basically laid out the story of two lives. He laid out the story. I mean, we didn't see their whole lives, however long they lived, but he laid out the story. One life was lived for oneself, for themselves, for their own glory and success and stomach, and the other lived in poverty, desiring, listen, only one thing, grace. Grace. And then we read in verses 22 and 23, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side. More contrast, right? Great contrast. The poor man goes first. And, and look at the words. He's carried up by the angels to Abraham's side, a picture that every Jew in that day, every one who knew their Torah, who knew the Old Testament, would know and fully understand this is where God would be, which is heaven. They would know that. Now, next goes the rich man. He dies, and the picture is clear. He goes down, he's buried. And where? In, in Hades, which is not a code word. Sometimes people like to pass that off. It was, it was just a garbage dump on the outside of Jerusalem that was on fire all the time. It was used because it was a metaphor for the reality. And so it's not a code word. This is literally hell. He, he's described as being in torment, which is what Lazarus endured when he was on earth. The rich man who is now the poor one looking up, what a reversal, right? Sees Abraham, the great patriarch of the Jewish people, and Lazarus is at his side. And final key for us to see here is today is this. They both died. They both did die. The outcomes were very different. And so the truth is, we all die. Everyone will physically die. But there are two distinct spiritual destinations. Then we read, and he called out 
Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. So look, clearly, it's a tragedy when anyone dies, but especially when someone dies without saving faith, saving faith in Jesus. And that's, friends, honestly what's on display here today. That's what we're seeing here today. Even now in this terrible state, this man doesn't get it though, does he? He doesn't get it. Even at that point, this is what the story wants to make clear to us. Look at what he says. Actually, he demands of Father Abraham. He calls Father Abraham to have mercy on him. You might ask for what, and that would be a really good question. But then look, he calls him to have mercy on him, but listen, not to help him get out of where he is. That's interesting. But by ordering Lazarus to come down to him. So he asks him to somehow help cool his situation, and again, not so that he can get out, but so that it's just a little bit more bearable for him. It seems odd to me. It seems very odd that he doesn't ask for a mercy that would allow him to get out of there. So it's truly sad to see but this, but, but do you notice that in asking Abraham to send Lazarus, he's still thinking he's the rich guy. He's still thinking that way, and therefore thinking that Lazarus is, well, he may not be the poor guy outside his gate, but he's at least his servant who should serve him at this time. And so the truth is, obviously, his delusion continues even after his death. But there's also this. There's also this. He knows Lazarus' name. Guilty as charged. He knew who he was. He knew who this man was outside of his gate every day. He knew he laid out there, his gate for years, and he did nothing to care for his brother. No, he treated him just like a dog, and he continues to view him as his servant. Now, I feel like I need to do a little bit of an excursus, which is a little of a side note here about this whole issue of flame. I know that some of you may have been raised in, in decades and decades and decades ago, and some of you may have heard of the good old fire and brimstone preachers who literally supposed and believed and taught that, yes, hell was a place of fire place of burning. And I want to suggest to you that most theologians and um, people that I read today, and myself included, would suggest to you that, no, this is, this is really more of a metaphorical picture. But let me explain to you how that might look, because he is literally in torment. Now, I don't know about many of you, but I remember back in my early 40s, it was a few years ago, I remember hearing a, a talk by one of my favorite motivational speakers, his name was Zig Ziglar. Um, and and he, he said, listen, what you want to, and I won't try to do his Texas drawl, which was amazing, but he, he basically said, what you want to avoid is stinking thinking that leads to hardening of the attitudes. Because right? he was talking about how, how we get older and, and how it might impact our, our work and our careers and our, our you know, positive mindset that we should have uh, in life, hopeful mindset, and how we could become angry and bitter and how it become worse and worse. And you know what? I remember thinking in my early 40s, man, I... I, I felt myself becoming like that. I, I would watch the news and I'd see things and I'd go, yeah, those people, you know, 
and, and then become very critical. And, and you, you don't know anybody like that, do you? You don't see anybody like on Facebook or, you know, comment threads on political articles, you know, being like that at all, do you? So here's the point. I think what can happen to many of us in our world today, quite frankly, because of just life, but also because of the fact that we may not have the Holy Spirit of God in us, transforming who we are, we become angrier and more bitter and more bitter the older, the older we get. I remember thinking in my, my early 40s, I, I don't want to become a grumpy old man. I don't want, to, I want that, that to happen. And so I prayed a lot, and God is continuing to do a work on me in that area. But let me suggest to you this is what it looks like. Now, can you imagine you die an angry, bitter person who, who on the surface when you meet people is Mr. or Mrs. Friendly, but really your heart is bitter. Can you imagine living in a place for eternity where that is the only thing that exists with yourself and others just like that and it just gets worse? Eternity is a very long time. That would feel like a flame. That's a fire. That is torment. It goes on, but Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things. Good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here. And you are in anguish. I, I want you to see this. I believe we can see from the words of Abraham here the true heart of God which is his love, when he says, child. He's not looking down at this man. There's no condemnation here. It's just like, son, daughter. He then explains the great reversal that's now taken place. You had all the good things in life. You had gone from rags to riches in your life, but you used it all on yourself. On the other hand, Lazarus had all the bad and now he has truly gone from rags to riches. He's covered and comforted by God in the way that you should have comforted your brother. And now you are left with yourself. He continues, Abraham does, and says, And besides this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. This is really short. I just want to say it in three words. This is essentially what explains these verses. Abraham is essentially saying to this poor lost soul, it's too late. It's too late. You had your chance to live for God, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your body, soul, with your life, and your neighbor, your brother, as yourself, which every Jew knew was exactly what the law taught them. But instead, you served yourself. Friend, child, it's too late. So friends, that's what we all must understand from the mouth of Jesus here today. When your heart beats its last beat, when your lungs breathe their last breath, when the monitor goes to a flat line, it's too late. 
if you're listening here today and, and you have some objections to this idea, I understand. I understand. The rich man did too. Here's his objections. And he said to Lazarus, he said to Abraham, pardon me, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, still my servant, right, lest they also come into this place of torment. He's, he's essentially protesting, I would suggest, his lot and what has happened to him, but he's protesting what he's just heard from Abraham. He, it's like he's saying this. He's saying, like, listen, truth is, I didn't have enough information. It's not fair. It's not fair. I didn't have enough information, so listen, at least give my brothers and my family that opportunity. That's fair, isn't it? But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them, he says. So I'm sure that the Pharisees who were listening to these words of Jesus, these words to them at this point in time were like daggers. I'm sure of it. They were actually intended to cut them to the heart. Jesus' intention here was to cut them to the heart so they would repent and they would trust him and believe in him. They were the ones who preached the words of Moses and the prophets. They demanded others that they hear Moses and the prophets, but they themselves did not heed what they actually preached, nor did they understand that all of the words of Moses and the prophets, the whole Old Testament, was pointing to the ultimate Savior, the ultimate sacrificial lamb, the Messiah, it was Jesus Christ. He's still got some objections, this man. And so he replies and he says, No, Father Abraham, but listen, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. So he per persists one more time, demanding that more evidence is needed. And, and, and in his mind, what could be better? What honestly could be better, what more incredible miracle could be given than that someone whom his brothers also knew, his brothers also knew this man Lazarus, was risen from the dead? Wouldn't that cause them to go, okay, right, now, wow. And, and you, so you talk to our brother and he's, okay, we repent, we believe. Well, then we see that he does get it don't we? It's still too late, but he gets it. And that is what we all need to get. He says, if you give them that, if you give them that information, they will, what? Repent. Abraham says these final words to them, to him. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So I, I was thinking about this the last couple of days. How fitting is it that we end this passage, this text in Luke here today? On the day that is known as Palm Sunday, the day when Jesus rides humbly on the back of a donkey. Now, do you, do you understand the picture there? 
like the people, of course, in Jerusalem on that day, a couple thousand years ago on Palm Sunday, they were like, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. Why? Because they're thinking Jesus is the Messiah. The Pharisees are sitting there going, what's he doing on a donkey? It's not how a king, a Messiah, should ride in on Passover week. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, the people declared on that day. Five days later, in unison with the Pharisees and the scribes and all of the religious people and the Romans in that city, cried out, crucify him, crucify him. So yeah, this week we celebrate Good Friday, the day the Son of God came to take away the sons of the world, yours, sins of the world, yours and mine, and died on the cross in our place and was buried. And then three days later, we will celebrate, certainly, and we do it every year. The church has been, churches all over the world have been doing it for thousands of years now. We will do it, and we will declare these words, He is risen. And you will reply, He is risen indeed. We have that evidence today. Men and women from the day that it happened have gone to their deaths, declaring it so that you and I would trust and believe. So friends, these final words from our passage today were spoken by the very person who did rise from the dead. Were they convinced? Do you think in that day? Well, actually, after his death, burial, and resurrection, some were, even some of the Pharisees. However, we also know from Scripture that few are those who realized this truth, who were Pharisees. But many, many who were poor, specifically those who were poor in spirit, those who have humbly come to understand who God is and what he has done for them, have repented and turned from their sinful pride and placed all of their faith and trust in Jesus for their lives today and for eternity. My hope and prayer for all of us here today, all of you here today, is that Jesus, listen, knows your name. As we close today and head into another week um, and month and maybe year or longer, when so many things are unclear and clearly unsettling, I want to leave you with this thought that Joshua Chestnut left with his class during his talk on death at Labrie just a few weeks ago, just before COVID hit the United States of America. He gave this message, as I said at that time, which was just breaking. He, he himself is in his mid-30s, and his wife Sarah also is in his mid-30s, and he shared that she had a year earlier come down with a serious case of the flu, ended up in hospital, and she thought she was going to die. Not from this virus, but from the flu. And she shared that with him, and she literally thought she was going to die. And the Lord gave her a prayer that I want to leave with you that he gave to his class. He gave her a prayer, and it's become her prayer, his prayer. And I want to suggest to you, Christian, that we make this our prayer too. The prayer is this. Lord, last night I didn't die. Today I might die. All of my tomorrows are in your hands. Rags to riches. The truth is, 
only those who truly go from poverty to richness in Christ will be with him one day. In the meantime, let's pray. Lord, last night I didn't die. Today I might die. All of my tomorrows are in your hands. Pray with me, would you?